Dress to History Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. Over 8 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Dressed listeners, as you know, we love sharing stories that celebrate fashion throughout history and around the world. And the work of today's guest, Joe Chalida, does just that. Joe is a fashion designer, writer, and historian who is actively working to archive and preserve the incredibly rich history of Lebanese fashion and craftsmanship. With an academic background in law and fashion, which he garnered in Sydney, Joe's journey in the fashion industry was facilitated by an invitation to join the creative team at Ellie Saab in Beirut. Since then, he has worked as a fashion and fashion history expert and consultant and contributed to numerous publications, TV shows, and lectures dedicated to spreading awareness of Lebanon's fashion heritage around the world. This is something he documents on the daily with his educational Instagram account at Lebanese Fashion History. And I actually began following this account last year, April, and it immediately became clear that I wanted to ask Joe to be on the show. He has done such a wonderful and thoughtful job with this account, and I have learned so much, and I know our listeners will too. And so we are so pleased to welcome him to Dressed. Joe, welcome to the show. Joe, welcome to Dressed. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Cassidy. It's a pleasure. I'm really excited to be on the show with you. So I'd love if you could just kind of tell us a little bit about yourself and the inspiration behind your quest to document Lebanese fashion history. Sure, you might hear a long answer from me. (laughs) I'm an Australian Lebanese designer born in Sydney, and I was actually raised between Australia and Lebanon. In Sydney, I completed a six-year law degree. I became a lawyer, yet I later decided to go back to my initial passion and um, enrolled in a fashion course. In 2011, I decided to move to Beirut, and through my time there, I was actually shocked with the reality that there has been a dearth of initiatives in Lebanon since the civil war of the 70s to preserve and archive the history of fashion, which I later discovered that it is extremely rich, unique in the region, and um, is in fact connected globally. This unfortunate reality gave rise to my urgency to start researching the history of Lebanese heritage of clothing, artisanal traditions, and um, the protagonists who were influential in the, in the industry in the past, who have been rarely or actually never credited, I felt it as a duty for the young and future generations to have a point of reference to learn about their history and identity through fashion, hence the birth of my initiative, Lebanese Fashion History. I, ca- I could actually say it is born from the lack of uh, documentation preservation and delivery of our heritage to the community. This urgency to preserve our heritage, however, came from firsthand experiences of the crisis Lebanon has been enduring for the past three years, whether economically, socially, or politically. Especially after the explosion, I felt uh, our identity is at stake and uh, as if it was almost a cultural genocide against uh, Lebanon and Beirut itself. 
And uh, during this time, I asked myself, I had the time to reflect, and I thought, what could I do for my country? And I thought, you know, I could fight through my expertise uh, in fashion to preserve our heritage and give back to the new generation so uh, our heritage is not lost. In these times of uncertainties, our history is definitely certain and should be preserved. The goal of the initiative is to raise awareness and give the new generation material that justifies the successes that Lebanon had achieved at its peak, highlighting key figures that played an important role in our history, putting Lebanon on the global map. The aim is not solely to reach the local community or the Mediterranean region, but to show the international community that Lebanon did have an international impact on a global level whilst demonstrating these international ties. Absolutely, which is how I, of course, found you because of the power of the internet and social media. I think I was scrolling through my feed one day and your Instagram popped up and I was just floored by how incredibly beautiful it was and how much information you had on there. You have an incredibly rich archive, as you said, because Lebanon has this vast and beautiful history of textile and dress and fashion traditions. Can you talk to us a little bit about your archive? Where and how do you conduct your research? I started researching by conducting interviews, actually, with uh, prominent people in the industry. And as you said, I was connected to these people through uh, social media. And that's how I was discovering these uh, personalities. And um, there were people associated to the 1960s, which I call like Lebanon's golden era. And um, I was surprised with the many discoveries I was documenting, especially the stories and uh, uh, people that no one knew about. These stories I felt had to be documented, archived and brought forward for the new generation to learn of. I also have established a network of acquaintances with several fashion historians around the world who have been very helpful regarding to any material they find about Lebanon in the fashion industry. Uh, I have access to libraries and journals, um, you know, to university journals around the world. And um, I get my information even from foreign sources, not necessarily uh, uh, sources strictly from Lebanon. It's incredible how much I've found fashion stories about Lebanon through like Vogue, for example, Vogue archives from various countries like the US, UK, specifically Italy, Spain. It's incredible. It was an incredible journey finding all this information, even from outside sources. Yeah. And as mentioned, you document it almost on the daily on your beautiful Instagram account, Lebanese Fashion History, which of course we will link to and our show notes, stress listeners. So as you mentioned, Lebanon has this rich and colorful fashion history. And I'd love if we can start with talking about the city of Tyre, which you label the antiquity's first capital of fashion. So why is this city significant to Lebanese fashion history, but also that of the world? This is incredibly fascinating. I think I was the first to coin this term that Lebanon is the world's first uh, fashion capital of antiquity. Tyre gave the ancient world the gift of purple, which became an obsession for the wealthy, the fashion set of the time, and those who were hungry uh, for imperial wealth. Uh, the city of, I'll give you a brief history of, of Tyre to understand uh, its importance and its global importance. The city of Tyre was inhabited by the Mediterranean's mighty Phoenicians, who dominated the trading world during the first millennium BC. Uh, from their main ports of Byblos, Tyre, and Sidon in modern-day Lebanon. 
and uh, by the way, they still exist, these cities in today's world. They established colonies throughout uh, North Africa, Europe, and Carthage in modern day Tunisia. So they were able to connect Mediterranean colonies starting from Lebanon. The Phoenicians were exporters of the world's most luxurious items, uniquely Lebanese, such as cedar wood, which was used as uh, perfume, especially by the Egyptians. And uh, it was documented as one of the oldest perfume scents ever made. Other exports were fine linens, silks. However, their most prized and coveted export was the Tyrian purple dye, as I mentioned earlier. As the name suggests, the purple dye was given birth to in the ancient city of Tyre in Lebanon. The color was much sought after because it eventually became the only shade in which priests and kings and queens and emperors and magistrates would enrobe themselves. Nothing elaborates its magnificence more than the fact that the word Phoenicia, the civilization that, that birthed the color of which Tyre was a city, means land of purple. So it was given by the Greeks. They, were, they referred to Phoenicia as the land of purple and the Phoenicians were the purple people. The color was mentioned in early texts such as the Bible and was also mentioned in Homer's Iliad, describing Cleopatra's sails and furnishings to be dyed in the Tyrian purple. We know that Julius Caesar was enamored by the color upon meeting Cleopatra, that upon his return to Rome, he in fact decreed through legislation that the color be worn by royals only. So the higher your social and political rank, the more purple you could wear. For example, a victorious general was allowed to wear a purple toga bordered in gold, while senators could wear a toga with a purple stripe. Tyrian purple was incredibly expensive, so much so that contemporary sources state that it was literally worth its weight in gold. Perhaps because of this, it became synonymous with royalty, and the sale of purple cloth remained a jealousy-guarded state monopoly. Anyone caught attempting to manufacture the color with the uh, fake dyes, uh, could, uh, could well die. According to uh, Roman historian Suetonius, King Ptolemy of Mauritania's sartorial decision to cloak himself in purple on a visit to the emperor Caligula cost him his life. Caligula interpreted the fashion statement as an, uh, an act of imperial aggression and had him killed. So it was strictly for royals. And uh, the romance of the color purple stayed for the years and uh, during the Elizabethan era, only close relatives of the royal family were allowed to wear purple. And this romance stayed right through the 20th century when Elizabeth II, uh, she was featured in heavily wearing the purple cape for her coronation in 1953. So it was the most coveted color in antiquity by the rich and famous. And uh, it gave rise to Tyre being the world's first capital of fashion and supplier of luxury items from Lebanon to the world. So I do say it is Lebanon's gift to the world in the fashion scene. And can you talk a little bit about how that purple's produced? They actually are produced um, from the Murex shells. There are uh, shells that are um, found on the Mediterranean coast, initially found in the city of Tyre. It's a coastal city in uh, Lebanon. And uh, there are different types of murex shells, and uh, each shell gives like a different shade of purple. So Tyrian purple is not strictly one shade of purple, but actually is a varying degrees of different shades of purple. Oh, that's fascinating. And it takes thousands and thousands of these shells to produce it, hence why it's so expensive. <laughs> yeah. So expensive. Exactly. It's, it's like 
to dye like a piece of cloth, which is like, say, 10 centimeters wide by one meter, it will take about 50 kilos of shells. Wow. Of mirror shells to just dye a little strip. And that's why it was super expensive. Incredible. So can you identify and describe some of the distinctively Lebanese styles of dress and what types of textiles and decorative techniques can you expect to find in these garments historically? You know, Lebanon was under uh, various occupancies and, uh, uh, you know, we were occupied by various uh, civilizations, you know, from the start of the Phoenicians and we have the, you know, Persians and the Romans and the Greeks and then, you know, the Ottomans. And um, we were heavily... Uh, influenced by the Ottoman attire, you know, especially in the 19th century. But what is typically and uniquely Lebanese is the women's headdress, which is called the tantur. It's a a very tall, conical uh, headdress made from either gold or silver. The richer that you you were, it would have been with gold, made with gold and could be... um, embellished with the uh, precious stones or diamonds and pearls. It was also embellished or etched by hand. And it had uh, patterns of like Lebanese symbols, like cedar trees, cypress trees, native birds, and various uh, patterns as such. Another uh, unique Lebanese headdress is the men's headdress. It's called Lebede in Lebanese. And um, it is it was made from lamb's wool or camel's hair. And uh, the, the name Lebede means, refers to the process of felting. So it was felted by hand. It was mixed, uh, uh, the lamb's wool or the camel's hair was mixed with soap and uh, they would form this conical shape. And this goes back to uh, uh, the ancient roots from the Phoenicians. Also what is very special, a uh, few years ago, uh, uh, there were mummies discovered in uh, Lebanon. Uh, they were referred to as the Maronite mummies. And uh, they go back to the 13th century. And what's incredible about these uh, finds were that they were all dressed in uh, uh, gorgeous 13th century tunics. And they were heavily embroidered with cross-stitch embroidery in such good quality and well-preserved. And this gives us an example of uh, the type of embroidery that was present in Lebanon in the 13th century, which is a very rare and special insight. You know, there were uh, themes, again, like cy- cypress trees. There were like naturally being, uh, they were Christian Maronites. So there was like forms of crosses, um, flowers, and um, there were the yarns were dyed uh, by uh, vegetable plants. So th- this is a very special find because we don't have a, a anything preserved earlier than the 13th century. And of course, you can find images of all these things that you describe on your Instagram, especially these um, you know, multiple images of these really distinctive women's headdresses, which are, are like, I think something like 30 inches high. They're incredibly tall. You write about how women would even sleep with them. Yes, it's incredible. Women never took them off, especially married women. They were worn by married women. And uh, uh, the richer you were, the taller Tantur was, and it could reach up to a one, one meter high in height. And they never took them off, and they went to bed with those um, <laughs> conical headdresses on their head. And they had a special wooden pillow for it, which went underneath to support the headdress. Incredible, yeah. That is incredible. I mean, it's such a marker of status, obviously, in so many different exactly. ways. <laughs> it was a mark of honor as well 
for women. Wow. So I would love if you could talk to us about 1920s Beirut as this fashion center, and then specifically about the significance of photographer Marie El Khazen and her role in documenting, you know, this 1920s exciting period of gender-bending sartorial expressions that she documents. I'll give you a little bit of a background about the 20s. So in the 1920s, the state of Greater Lebanon was declared by the French and uh, naturally, Lebanon was under a French mandate. Uh, but this was the time when Beirut was involving and Western influence was playing a major role. The elite society of Beirut were creating many Paris already. So French cafes, bars were opening up, a burgeoning nightlife was taking over Beirut, and so did Lebanese feminism. The emergence of feminism was influenced by European feminist movements, carried through European missionaries who brought education with liberal ideologies into Beirut. So a prominent Lebanese feminist at the time was Maria Al-Hazan, who was a 1920s photographer and the first female Lebanese photographer in Lebanon. So Marie tackled subjects of gender equality and women's empowerment at a time where women used their education to promote these sensibilities. So Marie photographed women in men's attire in strong and confident poses with the aim of promoting gender equality. In one of her photos, for example, we see a woman in men's attire juxtaposed over a male subject. She photographed women smoking, driving cars, riding horses, accompanying men on hunting trips. All these were in defiance to what was considered as the norm for women at the time. So you can say really photography was a medium she used to empower women and ultimately through the choices of fashion, which became a trend with a local bourgeois, accompanied with short hair, it was a symbol of women's emancipation. Yeah, and actually there's a wonderful book out um, about Marie's work by a scholar named Jasmine Tan. And I actually think, you know, I'm, I'm going to reach out to her and see if she can come on the show and talk to us about Marie's work because it's really, really incredible. Yeah, it would be great because she's done a book encompassing the whole era and concentrating on Marie's work. and. Um, She's done, I think, some talks before at universities in Beirut, and yeah, she'd be excellent to reach out to. Oh, absolutely. So hopefully stay tuned for that, dress listeners. Yes. <laughs> so you have post a lot about the so-called Lebanese golden era, and I'd love if you could tell us what that golden era was and what is the significance of fashion and clothed expression to this period specifically. Yes, that's actually my favorite period. <laughs> well, <the laughs> I can tell. Era- Yes, the golden era refers to Cassidy to the pre-war years, so generally from the 1950s through to the early 70s. So the golden era of Lebanon was another renaissance, in my view, that Lebanon went through. It was a period when Beirut was referred to as Paris in the Middle East. It was unlike any other city, the fusion of the Orient and the Occident of tradition and modernity made it really a lucrative city to invest in in that period. It was a time when it was described as a playground of the rich. It was visited by Hollywood stars such as Marlon Brando, Frank Sinatra, Brigitte Bardot, and Margaret, French actors, actresses, kings, queens, you name it. Royal families from around the world really made it their holiday destination. A major factor that contributed to this reputation was the launch of the Balbak International Festival in 1956 under the patronage of Lebanese President Camille Chamon. Set at the Grand Roman Temples of Balbak, the festival became a beacon in promoting culture and tourism in Lebanon. 
The festival hosted local and international talents. It gained a reputation for being the most unique in the region. Most importantly, it played an important role in promoting Lebanese culture like never before, and it gave a platform for the first time for Lebanese designers to be able to showcase their designs through plays or performances and theater. And from there, I would say the Lebanese identity was born through fashion and design. The reason I say this is because of this festival, for the first time, we were able to see traditional Lebanese costumes designed for the stage. And for the first time, an artist wore the traditional tontour headpiece for play. It was Lebanese uh, singing sensation and icon, Sabah. Another major factor that influenced Beirut's reputation was, the, was Lebanon's casino, Casino du Liban, which caused an unprecedented tourist boom. Much gratitude is owed to the artistic activities undertaken by the casino and the spectacular shows held at the theaters, described as the finest in the world. It was dubbed as the most glamorous casino on the Mediterranean. Opened in 1959, the casino's shows were international and on par with Las Vegas, especially since the world-renowned producer Charlie Henches was brought, in fact, from Las Vegas to reside in Beirut with the dancers for four years to produce the shows for the casino. This naturally attracted Hollywood stars to Beirut, and in turn, Western movie makers became attracted to Beirut due to its allure, glamour, and cosmopolitan nature. So movies from this, from this period included many FBI-style movies like Secret Agent 777, Where the Spies Are with David Niven, only When I Laugh with Richard Attenborough and David Hemmings and Agent 505 Death Trap in Beirut. All these were showcasing Beirut as an alluring and glamorous cosmopolitan city. The casino had the exclusivity in hosting Miss Europe for five years consecutively. It was the first country to host the event out of France. This move brought much attention to Beirut and the casino through the various European media present at the time was also a tactic move by the CEO of the casino. This way, Beirut was promoted by all these European nations as hosting Miss Europe. So beauty pageants were at their zenith in Beirut. Our first Miss Lebanon representative in Miss Universe was during the golden era. It was actually in 1955. And we were one of the very first countries to join Miss Universe. And we beautifully sealed the golden era, in my view, with a beautiful win in 1971 when Lebanon's Georgina Rizip won the Miss the title of Miss Universe 1971. So beauty and glamour have always been synonymous with Lebanese culture since ancient times, you could say from the Phoenician era till today. Everything happened in Beirut. It was always the first city to acquire the latest fashion. For example, I can tell you the label Longvin was first sold in Beirut out of Paris before any other, other city. You know, Beirut was making headlines, for example, through the first Lebanese couturière, Madame Sal. She made headlines in 1961 by designing the wedding dress for Lebanese um, princess Lamia Salah, who married a Moroccan prince, Moulay Abdullah. In 61, she was featured on several magazines on the cover, dubbed as one of the most beautiful dresses in the world and having the longest train at the time. And how long was this train? <laughs> it was about 22 meters long. <laughs> and it was like extremely heavy. <laughs> we'll have to post pictures of it. Um, yeah, you can see it on the uh, on the cover of Paris Match, the French magazine. And there was a magazine called Quick, a German magazine. She was on the cover. And um, you can check all these out on my Instagram page. 
And can you introduce us to, you mentioned one, but can you introduce us to some of the other Lebanese fashion designers that you've met in the archive, many of whom, you know, got their start or made their name during this golden age era? So the designer's work uh, that I had started to look at and work over, unfortunately, are the ones that are no longer with us. So designers like Madame Salha and Jacques Casse have left an impression on Lebanese fashion history. And I was lucky to be able to connect with their children to learn more about them and go through their archives. Uh, Madame Salha was the first official couturière in Lebanon and the Middle East with a registered business. She started in Beirut and she was well known in Parisian circles and she was dubbed as Dior of the East. Meanwhile, Jacques Cassia was a designer prominent in the early 70s. His designs were avant-garde and was the first designer to introduce unusual mediums to his designs in the Lebanese scene, such as plastics and, and metals. So I was able to uh, go through their archives and learn so much about them through their children. Wonderful. And something I really, really have enjoyed following your account is that you seek out and track down some of these top Lebanese fashion models from the 60s and 70s, and you've interviewed them about their life and their work, which is so, so special and I'm sure very meaningful to you. Can you introduce us to some of these women and maybe tell us about their fascinating stories? Yes, I'm glad you mentioned that because the memorable moments and times uh, of my work with Lebanese fashion history was, in fact, meeting those models. They've left a, a, you know, an irremovable impression. International Lebanese models were making a scene during, the, this, uh, during this period. Lebanon's and the Middle East's first international top model was Andre Akouri from Beirut. Uh, she was actually uh, discovered accidentally on a trip to Switzerland. And uh, she was asked to model by a Swiss designer who met her there. And that's how uh, her career was launched. She ended up being a, a favored model for Christian Dior. And from Beirut, she was traveling the world for fashion shows. She was also flown from Beirut to Paris for seven years consecutively uh, as she was hired as the in-house model for Nina Ricci. And um, according to her, that was one of her memorable moments of her career. She modeled for many local and international designers around the world, and her archive is actually incredible. I had the opportunity to visit her at her home in Rome. That's where she's residing currently. And um, I've had an amazing couple of days with her, just going through the archives and studying and um, learning so much about them. It was um, very memorable. Wonderful. And I'm sure memorable for them, too, you know, for someone to come after all these years and want to talk to them about that that period in their life. That made them proud because seeing, you know, someone from a younger generation is really interested and um, not only just for uh, as a personal passion, but also to extend this to the future, future generation and, um, you know, let the new generation actually learn about what Lebanon achieved in the fashion industry. You've been so generous with your time today. Thank you so much for sharing your project with us. I'm so excited to follow you all into the future. Um, but before I let you go, I'm curious, how does your knowledge of Lebanese fashion history inform your own work? Because you are a fashion designer as well. Yes, um, definitely. Uh, this project was an eye-opener for me. Uh, you know, we know uh, for a designer to be so successful is when you have uh, an identity and a signature. Um, which thankfully I'll, I've already have established that in my career, but also um, learning more about your own background 
uh, and your heritage and uh, when it suddenly becomes even a, a tactile you you, you um, appreciate that more and it does add to your knowledge and uh, add more to your identity the way I was influenced with this to be honest I've started taking an interest in designing uh, a collection in, which is um, based on historical Lebanese costumes especially noticing that you know we miss that in uh, Lebanon we don't have a, a fashion museum um, and we don't have a museum of our historical costumes. So I've taken the opportunity to start designing a collection depicting the historical costumes and hoping one day it will be displayed in, a, in an exhibition. Oh, how very exciting. And how do you see the Lebanese Fashion History Project moving forward? What do you hope to do? I mean, you've mentioned one thing with your own work, but what else do you hope to achieve moving forward? What I'm hoping after seeing the interest by various different uh, organizations, people, and uh, especially like fashion students and um, even colleges contacting me for a, 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 whether conducting a webinar or to come into the colleges and uh, and uh, submitting a, a lecture. I'm I'm very interested in on working now on a, a syllabus uh, on a Lebanese fashion history syllabus, which would be delivered uh, as a course in fashion universities for the first time, and that's what I'm working on now. Um, I'm hoping, of course, to keep working on my archives and building them and um, hoping to work on a unique exhibition that will showcase the Lebanese fashion history uh, through uh, collections and photographs, through an, uh, an exhibition that will travel around the world. Very exciting. And like I said, we will continue to follow you. I'm sure our listeners will immediately follow you if they are not already. And very excited to see what you do moving forward. This is such a wonderful project. And thank you so much for sharing what you do with us today. I just want to say thank you for your time and for you know showcasing Lebanese fashion history. And the aim here is to reach out to the global community. And I'll be honored <laughs> for more people to be following from around the world, for sure. Oh, yeah, it's such a such a beautiful account. I can't say enough wonderful things about it. You do so many wonderful educational posts on the daily. So thank you so much for doing that. And thank you for being here. Great. Thank you, Cassidy. April, I really love how people like Joe, but also other past guests like Dr. Reem Al-Makwali from the Zay Initiative, which is documenting the Arab world's diverse fashion history. And then we also have had Faith Cooper on the show who has her wonderful Asian fashion archive. All of these people are actively working to really expand the narrative of fashion history, which so often centers Europe and America, because in reality, fashion exists in different forms all over the world. Yeah, and and I especially love their work because it kind of checks that dominant narrative of fashion history, right? That we hear all the time about French couture reigning supreme. This has, of course, existed for so long. And these other archives are giving us this wider lens and a much more global perspective. From clients to models to designers, fashion is and was always much more international than we might initially consider. I think that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider Lebanon's incredibly rich fashion heritage next time you get dressed. And be sure and follow Joe's Instagram account for a daily dose of Lebanese fashion history. And you can, of course, also follow us along on our Instagram account at dress underscore podcast, where you'll find images and a reels accompanying each week's episode. 
And if you'd like to find the Instagram content specifically connected to this episode, check out the hashtag dressed 294. That's hashtag dressed and the numbers 294. And of course, we always love hearing from you. So feel free to reach out to us anytime at dressed at iheartmedia.com. If you have a moment to take the time and rate and review us on your podcast listening platform of choice, we always appreciate your support. Just like we appreciate the support of our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes the show possible each and every week. More Dressed coming your way soon. Dressed, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.